For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was homeless, and you gave me a room. I was shivering, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you stopped by to visit. I was in prison, and you came to see about me. Progressive Christians love this text. My God, we love this text. We pull this text out every chance we get, mostly when we're trying to show someone that they're being a goat, that they are not abiding by what is arguably the most justice-oriented teaching of the carpenter of Nazareth. We love this text. We love it because it gives us a tool, a way to measure ourselves and others. Then all the nations, the writer says, will be arranged before him and he will sort the people out much as a shepherd sorts out sheep and goats, putting the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. This text provides an apparatus of separation, a way to divide the wheat from the shaft, the kernel from the husk, a way to separate ourselves from the goats. It gives us a way to measure in our not-so-humble opinions who is, in fact, a true follower of Christ and who isn't. As folks who call ourselves Christians, regardless of our theological convictions, so much of our efforts have been connected to figuring out who the real sheep and goats are. And here's the thing, nobody wants to think they're a goat, ever. Very few people can look at this passage, this demand of those who desire to be disciples of Jesus the carpenter and understand the full scope of their desired identity. And, and those who call themselves progressive Christians often struggle the most with this text, with how what this passage is asking of us manifests in our lives we become distracted, distracted by our addiction to passages like this, wearing them like badges of honor. Look at me, look at everything I've done, committing them to memory so that we can pull them out as a witty rebuttal in the face of peril and inequity. Passages like Micah 6 and 8, do justice. Love mercy, walk humbly with God. Passages like Deuteronomy 6 and 5, love the Lord God with all your heart and soul and strength. If you grew up churchy like me, you might have had to memorize some of these passages and, and nothing is wrong with that. Nothing is wrong with being able to proudly quote a little Bible here and there, even if that's the only passages we know, because God forbid we actually come to a Bible study and learn more about this collection of books that we claim to rest our faith on. But often, we progressives know these few justice-oriented passages and we become intoxicated by them, so focused on telling the goats about themselves that we stop interrogating the sheep. We aren't the only ones focused on the goats. 
focused on the apparatus of separation. The writer of the Gospel of Matthew is obsessed with division, obsessed with the kingdom of heaven what it looks like, what's going, uh, who's going to make it there and who isn't, whose seeds are going to be placed in fertile ground and bear fruit, and whose seeds will conversely get tangled up in the weeds. In this gospel, the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, appears almost a dozen times as part of the Matthean eschaton. Matthew's narrative of the end of the old world and the coming of a new one. In the passages that follow, the kingdom of heaven is like, Matthew dictates through the lips of Jesus who will be saved and who won't, who will find a home on the other side of this chaos and who won't. Back in the 13th chapter of Matthew, he writes a Jesus who is once again predicting a separation of the good from the bad, the righteous from the dishonorable. He writes, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it to the shore. Then they sat down and they collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad ones away. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. By the time Matthew gets to chapter 25, he announces one final time what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven includes, one, those who keep their lamps burning and stay alert. Two, those who share their resources with others instead of burying them in the ground out of fear. And finally, three, the sheep the ones who feed and clothe and quench the thirst of their neighbors and let strangers sleep on their couches. These are the ones who will make it, not, not the goats who ignore Jesus's suggestions and turn their eyes away from the tent city at the edge of I-277. And of course, the goats are none of us. The goats are none of us good and faithful servants, us progressive Christians. So uh, since we're all living within the mythology that we are all sheep, let's be sheep then. Let me uh, speak sheep language. I'm not preaching to the goats and the rams today, I don't think. I, I'm talking to you and to me and to those who want to believe that they are the ones who will make it into the kingdom. The list is basic, they say. I hear theologians and preachers yell every time it comes up, the list is basic. Feed, clothe, house, quench, visit. Feed, clothe, house, quench, visit. The list is basic. Even in its basicness, however, the list gets more complicated as it goes on. Religion professor David Creech reminds us that there is no privatized prison industrial complex where the government held captives long term and provided basic food, water, and shelter in Jesus' day. 
the exhortation in Matthew 25 for followers of Jesus to care for those in prison was needed because detention of Christians was common enough. Matthew and his followers would have literally been risking their lives risking their freedom to feed, clothe, and quench the thirst of their fellow freedom fighters who had been detained by the state, some awaiting execution. This was beyond the basic. This was political action. A few weeks ago, Pastor Boswell was telling me the story of a young preacher who got up at a conference to speak. He read the entirety of Matthew 25 and sat down. That was his sermon. The list is basic, right? As radical as that might have been in that space at that time, it would be callous of me to sit in this space at this time and pretend that that is enough. If the list were enough, it wouldn't have taken four days to call an election. If the list were enough, nonprofits trying to feed, clothe, and house our neighbors wouldn't be fighting over the same puny grants year after year to do what a functioning government could have done overnight. If it were enough, the highway leading to a food bank in Texas wouldn't be backed up for hours, full of people desperate to feed their families, stripped of the ability to shop for themselves with dignity, if the list were enough. The list may be basic, but our worlds have become everything but basic. I mean, wear a mask seems basic as well, and yet here we are, a year into a global pandemic, witnessing people complicating what is merely a basic act of loving kindness and care. Yes, it is a basic list, basic human necessities, basic rights. But there is a disease among the sheep or shall I say, the sheeple. Uh, I'm not trying to cast folk out as goats just yet because God reminds us in the 34th chapter of Ezekiel that God judges the sheep too. God separates the destitute sheep from the privileged sheep too. So, so it isn't just about casting the goats into eternal damnation. There is a virus among the sheep. And how we got it isn't the fault of the collective body. Some of us have managed to quarantine and avoid it, but it leaves many of us struggling to do what is basic. It is a sneaky little thing and it spreads viciously amongst us. It has trapped us in a system of perpetual inequality and injustice. It has us acting like what author George Orwell describes as useful idiots. Useful idiots of the authoritarian regime, blindly following holy to-do lists, overwhelming ourselves with missions and outreach that are only as relevant as long as the disparities run rampant in our communities. We find ourselves drowning in a pool of dangerous philanthropy. 
It has us making sure we get our tax write-offs for checking things off the Matthew 25 task list, anticipating glass trophies with our names on them if we're really fortunate, expecting everlasting thank you letters from nonprofit organizations to come in the mail. We find ourselves receiving unending requests for funding justice initiatives that the local, state, and national governments are dragging their feet on. There is a virus among us as many of us blindly follow false shepherds into the sewer of toxic charity. It is a virulent system so broken and marred that there is there are days when I, I, I wonder if we will ever get out of this mess. There are, there's no person who is capable of saving us, no matter how many people vote for them. It is a system so ugly and exhausting that there are days when I wonder if we'll ever be able to see a new world beyond pinching pennies to make sure public school kids have pencils and books. Basic necessities. It is a system that has us making sandwich after sandwich for our neighbors, but not asking why they're hungry in the first place. It is a system that has us patting ourselves on the back for finding housing for a mother and her eight children, and then turning around to go vote for policies that are responsible for their eviction in the first place. Toxic sheep. It's wanting to philanthropize without having to smell the stench of poverty. It's quoting Matthew 25, but keeping the hungry on temporarily satisfied meal plans and the homeless at arm's length. The sheep are struggling. And in Matthew's telling of the story, the master recognizes them struggling as well, the sheep and the goats. They don't struggle understanding their call to justice. They struggle being able to decipher it in real time, to dismantle their assumptions and get to the heart of the issues. Master, they say, when did we ever see you hungry or, or thirsty, sick, or in prison? Jesus, we don't remember seeing you sick. What, what are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus takes this opportunity through this parable to teach his disciples not how to feed or even recognize hunger. He doesn't teach them how to clothe or even recognize nakedness. They, they know that already. Jesus teaches them how to see. Jesus says to them, I, I want you to take the blindfold off and, and stop being useful idiots. I, you keep choosing to put this blindfold on and I, I need you to see through the surface level to-do list to the heart of the injustice. I need you to see and not just what you want to see. I need you to stop putting band-aids on bullet wounds. I need you to stop excusing bad political behavior and blaming it on separation of church and state. I need you to see all the ways you've stepped over me in the streets and in the polling booths. I need you to see. 
for I was hungry and you told me to pull myself up by the bootstraps. For I was thirsty and you let me drink poisoned water for seven years. I was unemployed and you evicted me in the middle of a pandemic. I was cold and you cut off my heat during the winter storm. I need you to see, Jesus says to the goats and the sheep. I need you to recognize me. Perhaps if you could see, I mean really see, the list wouldn't seem so basic after all. Beloved, basic ain't biblical. What is being asked of us in this text, in Micah 6, in Leviticus 25, in Deuteronomy, requires us to go deep far beneath the surface of scrambling to buy socks for those who sleep outdoors. The work isn't basic. Having compassion for the poor and disenfranchised means empowering grassroots organizations. It means organizing poor people to organize themselves. It means fighting with and not on behalf of. It means restructuring our businesses so that we pay our employees a true living wage instead of engaging in the philanthropy Olympics. It means those who have been victims of the intersecting injustices can one day say, I was hungry and you fought for a grocery store to be put in my neighborhood. I was thirsty and in addition to sending bottled water, you stayed on the necks of the local and state officials until Flint River was detoxified. I was housing insecure and you demanded a moratorium on eviction. I was in prison for selling a now decriminalized substance and you demanded my release as an act of restitution. That is the call. That is seeing. That is justice. Advent is upon us. In a week we'll be entering a season shaped around preparation. The shepherds will be on watch and their sheep will be waiting with open eyes. As my colleague and friend, Pastor Tabitha, reminded me this week, Jesus is coming. We need to prepare a way. Jesus is coming. Jesus, who was born of an unsuspecting poor teenage girl in a filthy manger. Jesus, whose family was housing insecure. Jesus, the refugee. Jesus, the undocumented immigrant. Jesus is coming, and will we be able to recognize him? Will we be ready to open up our guest rooms when we encounter him? Will we be ready to demand that the mayor and city council halt evictions when we see Jesus carrying his tent down Moorhead Street? Will we be ready to see Jesus like he taught us to see him? Will we be prepared to put our comforts aside and our reputations on the line for his sake? Will we be ready to do justice that's deeper and wider and more radical than anything we've ever imagined?
or will we be content with our toxicity? Will we be content with the virulent systems that keep us bound and unimaginative? This is our choice today. The choice to detoxify, to prepare, to truly see to the heart of injustice. Let your wisdom be fortified as you wrestle with this task and, and let your imaginations be awakened, awakened with possibilities beyond the basic Amen.